Radio. This is Catholics Read on cradio.org.au. So hello and welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And today we are reading A Modest Proposal by Jonathan Swift. Or, Kiara, can you tell us the, the whole title? Okay. So the whole title, it is an essay... A modest proposal for preventing the children of poor people in Ireland from being a burden on their parents or country and for making them beneficial to the public with a K. Yeah, yeah, public spelled with a K. Yeah. It's the Old-timey century. spelling before there was a concise dictionary made, sort yes. of like when you find connection with an X in Pride and Prejudice. And, and in, like, stuff from the 40s and so. It was pretty Truly. Late. Yeah. Well, in the 40s they were doing it sort of intentionally to make it look old. <laughs> I'm going to do that in my <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. But... Why not? All right. So, Kiara, um, tell us what, what, what is a modest proposal? So, this is an infamous um, essay that Jonathan Swift wrote in 1792. And it... 1729, sorry, 92. I'm just, Jonathan Swift wrote this essay which basically proposes as the saving solution to poverty in Ireland is for poor people to sell their children as meat for rich people to eat. And clothing. And and clothe and it's clothing. Then <coughs> you know use their pelts as clothing. It's it's horrendous. <laughs> it's horrendous. It's a it's a horrendous essay and I should I, I must read you the bit where the essay turns because before he's describing the you know the dire situation that Ireland is in it really was in an absolutely appalling sort of economic situation. I have been assured by a very knowing American of my acquaintance in London that a healthy young child, well-nursed, is at a year old a most delicious, nourishing and wholesome food, whether stewed, (laughs) roasted, baked or boiled, and I make no doubt that it will equally serve in a fricassee or ragoust. It's quite fantastic because up until this point... <laughs> the essay was perfectly safe. <laughs> it, it, it was like, oh, there's this big problem that's happening, you know, we need to be able to find a solution for the common good or for the commonwealth. And and then suddenly this. And it's like just at this arbitrary point, it doesn't kind of stick out. It's just in this one-sentence paragraph there. I mean... Kara and I, I don't know about you, Victoria, you didn't know about this beforehand, did to, you? Okay, to, confession. I've heard the title of this before and it, you know, circulates in conversation every once in a while. To be honest, I thought it actually was a romance novel. <laughs> wow. An easy mistake to <laughs> make. That's probably, that's probably the best way to go into reading this, actually. <laughs> I knew that because you guys chose it, it couldn't be, so I went, <laughs> so I went in with a different expectation. <laughs> For a while, that's what I thought it was. Anyway. Okay. Ah, well, <laughs> well, I bet you got a shock. Um, actually, I read this in the um, in the office, um, but I exiled myself to the kitchen. And so, so she I, could concentrate. So I, I could concentrate. <laughs> and um, I came in about two minutes after starting to read, and I just quietly announced to the... Uh, room that I had I had read the bit and, the, and, and then I then I went back to reading the bit being the turn but the um ensued. yes yes and then she also read the bit about the papist babies yeah the pap- <laughs> that was my second announcement to the <laughs> yeah. room I'm up to the papist babies bit <laughs> so yeah basically it's this attempt at an economic solution to the poverty problem of poverty and famine in Ireland with a particular protestant 
flavour to it all. A particular cannibalist <laughs> flavour <laughs> to it. <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily drag the process. No, because you know, no, they get rid is, of the papers babies as well. Two birds that, with one stone. Yeah, yeah. There's, it, it solves the, the problem. The eerie problem with it is that it kind of, if you had no conscience, or if you had a very ill-formed conscience, this would be a very persuasive. And that's because it's satire. It's quite good in the... Yeah, by the way, people, he was joking. <laughs> Just to point that out. This is a satirical that. essay. Just, this is a satirical essay. Just remember yeah, we're that. Like, we're like four minutes in. <laughs> we should probably point that out. <laughs> yeah. um, yes, and so there's several problems that this would solve. It would mean that you have less mouths to feed, you would have the the poor people would not be begging on the street, but they would have a source of income through mm-hmm. having their children. Um, he argues that you would have less Catholics, and for an Englishman, that's even though he was Irish, but he was writing this for an English crowd. This would, of course, be a good thing. Um, he, also, he, was, he was Irish, but he was Anglican. Yes, he was yes, he was Protestant, and so Catholics were a problem in Protestant countries. This is correct. He also <laughs> puts forth. The, the idea that there would be more harmonious marriages because yes. men would not beat their wives because their they wives were... Because it's their source of... The, the those their children would be their source of income. Um, and that women would treasure their children more. Um, and it's all very... Like, it's all... It's a bit eerie, actually. It is. It's, it's very like, persuasive. Really, it comes to the point where you've read Carcass a few too many times. And it's, not, it's not just that, but you read it and you feel like... I feel like I could be reading this about a couple of other things today. Yes. Like a couple of other issues where it's just like, oh, you know, if you had less poor babies, well then, or if you had less unwanted babies, then the ones who are around will be cared for more. And you don't want unwanted children, do you? I'm going to leave that to the side for a moment. Yeah, but that's... like it sounds, it's very much at that point a very, um, is it ethos, like the appeal to the heart there that, you mm. know, like... This is a this is a good thing because it means that you know you're not going to have all these problems and so many of these problems will be solved by simply selling children to the rich to eat. Yes. I mean, for us that's that's He even goes he even go well, but not only that, he even goes into the details of exactly how it would work in an economic sense, detailing mm. it with numbers and, you know, um, including what an average cost would be and all this sort of and what you expect to pay. And trying to demonstrate from an economic perspective, perspective how this would be a better solution than what there is now. Yes. The Irish government, well, the the Kingdom of Ireland, I guess, I don't know. Why. No, no, no. It, well, it was... Is te- he sarcastic when he calls it the Kingdom of Ireland? Yeah, I don't know the history. Well, it was technically the Kingdom of Ireland, but it was under British subjugation. Okay. So um, about... Oh, let me think. So, so basically James II... Um, was driven from England because he was considered too Catholic, even though he wasn't exactly all that Catholic. Anyway, he was too Catholic for England, so they drove him out and brought in this guy, William from Orange. And so James went and sought shelter in Ireland where he had allies because... Hang on, I just had a moment there. Sorry, random interception here. Is this why the Irish flag is green and orange? Does it have something to do with this? I don't know that. Okay, I don't. Okay. I can't verify that. But it's gold. It's well, not well, orange. Listeners might. Oh, I thought it was it's orange. Go- it's, okay, no, it's I gold. thought it was orange because of the House of Orange. But anyway. Anyway, I don't know. I, d- I don't. I don't know the answer to that definitively. So homework for our listeners. Yes, you can, you can go. You can go look that up for me. Um, so yeah, so James went and saw, and you know there was a big rebellion. The English put it down, and then confiscated all the Irish land and distributed it about around, out amongst a bunch of 
English and Irish nobles who converted to the Church of Ireland, um, which was Anglican, um, so, and they basically ruled the, country, ruled the country. Most of them were actually living in England. Most of them never set foot in Ireland, mm. and they just collected the money from their holdings mm. and mm. expected the money to come one way or another Yeah, without actually you know, being there to manage it. Yeah. And or so, see the misery they were causing. Yeah, and so Jonathan Swift makes this argument, once again, his tongue firmly placed in his cheek here, but nonetheless makes this argument that you would be able to... Um, the the Irish, the people of Ireland, I guess, the economy of Ireland would have so much less pressure on it because you didn't have to pay for bringing up these children. It would only cost a small amount of money to bring them up to the age of one, which is the point at which they would then... Um, kill them uh, and then they would it would be able to keep the economy running quite well because it would be able to circulate the money within the economy because he argues towards the end that they wouldn't be able to export this one because most people would think it's disgusting <laughs> in other countries and, and two because it wouldn't it wouldn't be able to pres- be preserved very well mm-hmm. um, he argues that you wouldn't be able to salt it quite well and so there wouldn't be it, the money would mostly be contained within the economy mm-hmm. um, which is <laughs> These are all economic arguments that and make, the reason that why, sense. But also why it's quite a clever satire. Yeah, and the, the other point too is why it was important that the money stayed in Ireland because Ireland at the time was the biggest exporter of salted beef, hard cheese and a couple of other food commodities. And it yeah. exported it to... It supplied the Royal Navy and the West Indies and yet it had a vast majority of the population starving. Mm-hmm. So the economics. So basically, all the food in Ireland was directed towards export. It wasn't actually being kept. It, no one was. No, the poor couldn't afford to eat any of it. Yeah, yeah, and that's and I that. Guess, yeah, and there was a famine in the seventeen forties. I think there was a devastating famine that killed four hundred thousand people, and this was before the potato famine. And yeah, basically, the reason why the by the time the great the great potato famine came around, the the poor Irish were left to eat nothing but potatoes because even then grain so grain was was sent for export, not kept, um, which is why so many Irish died in the later on later on the eighteen fifties because they didn't have anything to eat, mm. and the things that they and then and it's not that there was no food, there was plenty of food, but they couldn't afford to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> So there well, you go. On that depressing um, note, it was. Nonetheless, it's. I guess Jonathan Swift is aiming to try and point out. I guess the. I don't know. I I don't really know the context of Jonathan Swift here and that. But the impression that I get from from the text is that. Is that he's trying to draw attention to something. I don't think he's necessarily simply trying to draw attention to a ridiculous economic argument. He's perhaps trying to draw attention to the way the Irish are being treated. That although, I guess he wasn't, he was he was Irish, but he was also, I guess, more English than Irish. I don't know. No, he but was. No, his family. His. Uh, so I did. I did a bit of reading on Jonathan Swift. He's. Um, he's not. In, he, he wasn't born in Ireland, but he moved. He's had okay. connection. He had connections with. You know, he had a family estate in Ireland and that sort of thing. And he li- he's, he lived in Ireland. Okay. And he spent, and he considered he would have considered himself, you know, at least you know half Irish at least. So he was, and he also spent a lot of time, did a lot of sort of advocacy for Ireland's true autonomous self rule, not the autonomous self rule that they currently had yeah. when he was alive. And he, 
So he's considered he's considered a bit of an nas- Irish nationalist okay. in that regards, along with Edmund Burke, who was another philosopher. He was good friends with Edmund Burke okay. in Dublin, okay. who was another a very famous philosopher and economist at the time as well. So um, he's basically saying, guys, this is messed up. Mercantilism doesn't work. You can't put a price on everything. Mm. And I mean, all right. So let's, for argument's sake, put a price on children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is to I show you how absurd this is. But, but that's what they. Do, but they are even doing that in in the sense of he talks about how man, it's going to take so long for these kids to get to twelve years of age, and when they get to twelve years of age, they're going to be worth what three shillings, of which the price to clothe them is more. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is ridiculous. What are you doing with these kids? Like they're sitting around for so long, and even when they get to the age of working, they're still a tax, a burden on the economy. Let's just put them to good use now. And eat them. It's, it's <laughs> like, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's horrific. But I guess, you know. That was the point. To, yeah, talking to, there's, a, there's an interview going up um, soon, soon-ish, um, with, between myself and uh, Notre Dame lecturer, Renee Curler-Ryan. And we, this was not in the interview. She's we, so awesome. She is awesome. So awesome. We were talking about the nature of satire. And about how um, satire is meant to... Um, it's not simply meant to make you laugh. Like a lot of no, the time it's meant satire, to reveal truths. Exactly. It's meant to reveal truths. And it's meant to, men- it's meant to make you reflect upon those truths. It's, it's I guess... The funny... The, the humour is the a way to... The barb is there yeah. because it's true. Because your point... Because there's a truth in that. And so a lot of the time, you know, if you have satire, it's like, oh, ha, ha, that's so funny, that's so funny... But if nothing happens, then the mm. satire has failed. Um, and that's what's happening here. You know, people consider and go, oh, ha, ha, isn't that a completely ridiculous notion? You know, how, how silly were those English and how silly were all the people at the time that... But if nothing actually comes of it, if you just think it's a good piece of comedy, then it's it it's, hasn't, it's, it's, it hasn't it's worked d- well. Yeah. Or you haven't internalised it well. Um I guess this would probably be a good point to then see what would something like this speak to today, today's world about. I think very much we take. I we mean, might not take an economic approach to these. But things even in the then, the way, economics, the economic problems that Ireland were experiencing back in the time are not so different to now. Like the hunger is not an issue of volume of food production; it's an issue of distribution. Hmm. And people are poor. You know, people who are starving today actually can't afford food like in a, on a on a smaller scale like quinoa for example quinoa was a stable grain in bolivia and mm. which is where it's I grown was trying to find this article the other day but go on sir yeah so quinoa was the staple food of a lot everyone in bolivia it was a really important you know it was it was their diet mm. um mm. poor people couldn't eat anything else but quinoa then some health foodies realized how great quinoa was, and it is great. It's it's a great it's it's a grain with the highest amount of protein of any vegetable matter. It's like twenty percent protein or something like that. It's got all sorts of it's really healthy. It's really good for you, mm. and it was doing a great service to the Bolivians, keeping them you know alive, a lot you know alive yeah. and well, and not just alive but well nourished. Mm. Like there were no you know, and then some people in the and in, in the Western world discovered quinoa, and how good it was. And then they started marketing. Then they started, mark, you know, take, you know, buying a portion of it and marketing it as a superfood. And guess what? It became a fad. 
now Bolivia exports most of its quinoa, and the poor can, no, you can the price of quinoa in Bolivia has gone up so much that the poor, that most people can't afford it. Mm. Oh, that's terrible! I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Most people don't. So when you, so in all seriousness, like when you don't look buy at, quinoa. no, you can buy quinoa. They're, they're ne- finally, finally, yeah. people are now growing it outside of Bolivia. So when you go to you go looking at your quinoa, look where it's grown because you don't want to be supporting an unsustainable system in Bolivia, which is basically you know doing it, you know, which is basically malnourishing malnourishing the mid- lower middle classes and the poor in Bolivia. Yeah, because because at the end of the day, who cares about them? We can no. make a buck. Exactly. And <laughs> we can be healthy. Yeah, exactly. We can oh. you know, we can have a jet ski or something, man, you know. It's So it that's gets... just one small example of how it can get so skewed. And if you're not if you don't actually do your do, like take a time take some time to find out or you're not there to see it, you just people just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Speaking of about unstable economy well not unstable economies but unfair or unjust economies um there was pope francis recently came out with following up from his um his comment about rabbits on the plane <laughs> that got misconstrued and anyway yeah um yeah he, he followed he followed it up he had a i think he had a general audience or something like that and he was talking about how poverty he was reflecting upon his time in sri lanka and yes. the philippines which he recently concluded at the time of this recording and um how it's not big families that cause poverty. That's a lie that the Western world gets. And he he has, even in that plane interview where all they heard, all people heard was Catholics shouldn't breed like rabbits, um, he was saying within that that there's this lie from the Western world that comes out that you need to contracept, that you need to keep your family as small as possible. And I forget what he called it. He called it like... Something about he used like colonialism or imperialism. Imp- yeah, no, he he used I, no, intellectual. Was it the was it? Um, no, he used the word imperial um, colonialism. Yeah, I know what you're trying to say because I heard it this morning. Um, ideological uh, colonialism. Ideological yes. colonialism, which Pope Francis comes out with some real stunners sometimes with his isms, and that's that's one of them. That was and it's fantastic because that. Um, there's this lie that we've bought in the Western world in our attempts to try and separate sex from babies by saying that, you know, we'll try and come up with any excuse to justify it, and one of them is big families cause poverty. Garbage. Dictators cause poverty. Bad economics causes poverty. Those things... Selfishness, cause- greediness, and excessive, and, you know, and excessive free market capitalism cause poverty, I'd argue. And exactly. I'm not a socialist, by the way. I am not advocating for state ownership of everything and state distributes everything because that doesn't work either Hmm. but you know either extremes on the economic scale whether you go capitalism or communism they don't solve poverty yeah yeah and he was he was really pointing that out and i think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind as well in terms of when you look at these things as being economic problems i guess at the end of the day you have to look at the person it's the human person's flourishing and I don't mean flourishing as in you get a TV in your bedroom. I mean as in flourishing... Eudaimonia. Yeah, eudaimonia. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I think, the third or the fourth time. That's it comes up a lot. It does. <laughs> it does. Um, that's most important. We have to keep that in mind. As Pope Francis points out, you know, for the Western world, we might see, you know, the woman in, in poverty with coming up with her fifth or sixth child, that fifth or sixth child being a burden. But she and her family sees that child as a treasure. Um, and the same as with 
<laughs> I guess in a very strange irony, with Jonathan Swift. I mean, his satirical opinion that, you know, we've, pre- we've previously seen that child as a burden, but they not need not be a burden. They can be a treasure for us by turning them into an economic unit. No, that doesn't solve the problem. No, either. because the problem is that they are already considered an economic unit. You, Because at the time, there were all sorts of other solutions to try and solve the problem of, you know, poverty and poor just, people in Ireland. Moving, it's just moving the... It's still treating them like an economic unit. It's just moving, I guess, them to be the most efficient economic unit possible. Yes. Um, That's literally what... Jo- so Jonathan Swift was just taking the logic that was being used at the time and taking it all the way to its possible bitter end mm, to mm. go, look at where this line of thinking is taking you. And I Which mean, is, like, in our modern world, that's what nihilists do. Do you remember when we were reading... What was the one we were reading where you said that you actually respected the person because they actually took the ideology, like, to, oh, to the end? I've of read where so many it, books. What was the one we read? Um, it's very related. I'll try and remember. Keep talking yeah, and I'll yeah. try and remember the book. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, so... He took the logic. He took the logic and he ran with it, and mm. and and intended to show how absurd how absurd it was. In the you know the the conclusion was still utterly absurd because not because the premises were flawed necessarily, but the principle, the whole point, the whole its whole existence was flawed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, Victoria, I don't know. Do, Have, do you want anything to say? My only comment about this piece of writing is that I didn't know when it was written which is no surprise since I had no idea what this was to, be, to begin with. <laughs> but when I was reading it, I, I actually thought it was a very modern piece of writing in its, in its, in its style and um, in what it was discussing. So I was extremely surprised to find out that it was written in the 18th century um, because I thought... Modern. I was thinking more like... Early modern. I was thinking more potato famine time, to be completely okay. honest, yeah. or or potentially no. even the early century. early 1900s. That's what okay. I was. That's where I was placing it. Um, so I'm just surprised that I didn't know that there were writers like this at that time. And I'd be very interested to read his other Style things. Is very Gulliver, Gulliver's Travels is one of mm-hmm. is Jonathan Swift's most Jonathan Swift's most famous tale. book. Yeah, tale. Gulliver's hmm. Travels. I should really read that. I you should. I enjoyed Gulliver's Travels. To like, I've only read a couple. Um, of English modern philosophers. But he does, I think, write very similar to that. You notice the very long-running sentences with a thousand commas and... Like, I could see a little bit of... A little bit of Chesterton and a little bit of Orwell. In, in, okay. Like, As I in, think he prefigured it in, in his style. Yeah. And he can keep you engaged. It's very English. It's very... English yeah. it's, and it's very, very dry. Like, just... The, and in, in many anyway, ways, and it actually reminded me a bit of Hitchhikers because... Yes. He starts... Yes. The, se- the sentence starts off perfectly sane and ordinary and run-of-the-mill and then ends in... What is that? Like <laughs> your... What was it? The... Metamorphosis. Metamorphosis, yeah. yeah. But you know what? The person in, in terms of style, the author in style that I think most suited, like, not suited, but was similar was, um, strangely enough, Lemony Snicket. You read his works yeah. and I felt that I was almost reading something written by him, which was strange because he s- talks about the same sort of macabre sort of, like, things you shouldn't be speaking about, but in such a playful and um, eerie, irksome tone. I suppose it's strange. Anyway. Yeah. Way, I wouldn't be surprised like if I, also he this, was a this role essay model. is very short and he's mm. very on, and it's free on Gutenberg. So go go have a read of it. 
Yeah, yeah totally worth it. It's absolutely. It's, it's most one of the most famous pieces of satire in the history of the English language, I think. So pick it up and go for it. Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's good, and I think it's a good. Um, it's good to reflect on in terms of a lot of arguments that happen today. I mean, utilitarianism is so popular today. Um, and there's this sense of, I guess, I'm going to do this quickly because we need to wrap up, but um, I'm not sure if I've spoken about this before, but it's the um, oh, the wisdom of repugnance. That's it. The wisdom ah, of repugnance or something like that. What it's do called. you mean? So it's like this... Um, it's quite recent, I think. I don't know if it's... I don't know who writes about it, um, but I've done a little bit of it in philosophy. Renee, again, she's coming up a lot in this. But she talks about how, like, while emotional response is not necessarily a, um, a, good, in, a good basis for philosophy, it can be a little bit of a pointer mm. to something. So, like, if something is repugnant, even in the face of what seems to be a, a normal... Uh, rational philosophical discussion it might be pointing out something that you've missed and you've got to try and find the source of that repugnance so for example here this may seem like a very sane economic argument but it's disgusting you can't eat children like that's stupid (laughs) and so that reaction should that reaction now, we can often make the mistake, especially in these progressive postmodern times, of thinking that this is just our cultural training that we need to throw off, you know, because <laughs> it's just what's it's just our conditioning. You know, we need to get past that and think, no, 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 hang on a second. Why actually, really, why is it that I am repulsed by the idea of eating children? Because this seems like a very good solution to a problem. Um, Something else you brought up was the fact that just because you are repulsed or opposed to a solution someone gives mm. to a problem does not mean that we we or the person uh, refusing it does not see the fact that there is a problem. Yeah, that's something I wanted to talk about a little bit, but again, we need to wrap up. But just very quickly, I'm sure I'll talk about it, or maybe I've already talked about it, but how a lot of the time in arguments sometimes that I've encountered, you'll see that there are... I guess, multiple stages to an argument, but I'll just whittle it down to two, and that is that you have a problem and a solution, of course. Now, Cheston points this out, that almost everyone always agrees on the problem. Yeah. Everyone knows what the problem is, but it's the solution that's what, that's the sticking point. So, in this case, you know, the problem is poverty. Swift, in his satire, is saying that the solution has to do with children. Um, the capitalist would say that the solution is that the government needs to get out of there a little bit more and let business just run itself. Uh, the, the socialist would say, or the rather the, um, the welfare statist would say that, no, the government has to get more involved and, and try and get these people out of poverty through welfare or through um, government programs. All of those are wildly different solutions, but they're all, they all say that poverty is a problem. Now, a lot of the time in arguments today, I find, is that people will become so attached to the problem and the solution that they will fuse them together and think that if, say, for example, Victoria disagreed with me on the solution to a problem, I would think that she's disagreeing with the problem itself. So if Victoria said that, no, Jonathan Swift, I think that your solution is crazy and insane 
Jonathan Swift could say, well, hang on a second. Are you saying that starving children and that beggars in Ireland are not a problem? For some reason, we have a habit of doing that today. I'm not sure why it it's is. It's a cop-out. It, it is. It, it's a cop-out. Because it, it, you don't actually want... Because most people don't actually either know or want to engage with why one so the mer- the merits of either solution so it's just easier to accuse the other person of deny of you know mm. denial yeah yeah it's something that i think that is is around quite a bit today and i would encourage listeners when you read this try and look for things like that um, because i think it can be helpful in arguments today in conversations today that there are easy ways to try and shut down arguments um, or easy ways to try and construe arguments in the same way that jonathan swift does um, and so I think it's important to try and point out the problematic aspects to his argument because on the face of it, it seems quite rational. But of course, it's disgusting and wrong. Um, so yeah, any final comments? Totally worth a read. Um, totally worth a read yourself and to, so that you kind of understand exactly what we're talking about because it's quite a unique piece of writing, I think, in the sense that you very rarely see anything quite like that, quite so bold and so outrageous and even by today's standards like you know we you know we're like we're like the generation who is like so over outrage right i would wager that you'd still find this pushing your buttons yeah which is you know and you know very very fatigued buttons mind you but well, i, I think, think it's it was because it's got to do with children and i think our society still maybe not unborn children but children we still have very much uh, uh, our internal protection mechanism, I guess you could say, for them is still very much alive, even where in other places we've gone... A bit wrong, a bit haywire. Wrong. Yeah. But anyway, um, that's probably my closing comments. Victoria, any final thoughts? I think I just realised that I'd like to see some more satire in our time because I think it's really gone by the way wayside, except for in The Simpsons. And... Um, <laughs> <laughs> which I, think is perhaps, I think it's because perhaps satire has changed or, or it's not changed but I'm, I'm just trying to think Say people like don't know the difference between satire and comedy satire. sometimes it's but, satire other times it's, it's just belligerence yeah sometimes it's, it's satire well I would like to see this exceptional sort of very very sharp form of satire come back because there are terrible forms of satire where people would just be outright out, like outraged because people think you're being serious or being overly comedic or something like that but pure satire i'd love to see come back to attack some of the problems of our time mm. jonathan swift could probably you know come back and do a bit of that or someone under I, the I pen name would be awesome is what you mean like i think it needs it's it's precision I, I feel that there's yeah. precision in this there's, and the stuff i've seen and recently statement as well yes there's laconic understatement in this, and I think that's a really critical element of good satire, is that you have to say it with a straight face and you have to say it so casually and so nonchalantly that your tone completely and utterly betrays the meaning of the sentence. That's and that's the essence, I think, of really good satire. Whereas, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, a lot of people don't quite get that, don't quite get that. And not, every, and not everyone gets it all the time. Like, the chases could be brilliant, at, you know, and really sharp in their satire. Like my favorite one was their um, bat was the um, the 
citizens infringement officer who would go around fining people for their bad baby names. Yeah. That was fun. That was really <laughs> clever. Um, that they were was going down on the wrong side of the escalator. Yeah, you know, like, like yeah. really, that was really clever because it was pointing out our, you know, how inconsiderate we can be. And you know, just sort of pointing. To, you know, it wasn't it wasn't a major social problem, but it was sharp and it was understated. And it was like, imagine if someone actually did find you for being an idiot. Like, <laughs> um, so, and it, but it made you think about you. But it ultimately, like me as the viewer, it made me think about my own behaviour and go, oh my gosh, did I? Am I? Do I look like that idiot on the TV? Gosh, I shouldn't. I'm going to make sure I don't act that way. Mm, mm. Whereas, I don't know. I do think I do think you're right, Victoria. I think we mm. need a comeback of satire, yeah. real satire. All right. Well, it's not here because I don't think I'd be very good at it. Um, <laughs> okay. So next time we've made an executive decision, um, we're going to read The Hobbit. Yay! Um, yes. Yay! So we'll read The Hobbit. Um, yeah, I don't think there's much more to say than that. No. Tolkien, he's back again. Uh, this, this time in full story rather than short story yes, form. Yes, yes. This time not in allegory. No, not an allegory. Not an um, allegory at all. No, <laughs> definitely not. Um, and so, yeah, join us next time as we read The Hobbit. Bye. Bye. <laughs> that was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au. 